theyeshiva.net. Welcome, everybody, to another Fresh Start Alumni webinar. As I say every time, and I mean it, every one of these are special, unique, and meaningful. And um, they always take twists and turns that we, frankly, are not sure of ourselves when we start out. But let's see where this goes. Today, we have the honor of having two amazing people. Um, Of course, the world-renowned Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, who's been with us before and has given us tremendous uh, support and chizik and healing, uh, along with uh, Dr. Stuart Ablon. And, um, you know, while our program at Fresh Start was built for the purpose of helping people uh, recover from their own trauma, uh, one of the things that we secretly do is we try to help people uh, make sure that they don't replay the same trauma in their children. And that's a critical part of the work that we want to impact here. So, Dr. Ablon, that's where uh, hopefully you come in. And um, while we're all working on ourselves and healing our own past, I'm sure you have uh, ideas and strategies for how we can uh, make sure our children don't have to take the journey that so many uh, uh, people watching this video and on this call today have had to take. Uh, a little bit about Dr. Ablon before we begin. Dr. Ablon is an award-winning psychologist and associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and he's the founder and director of Think Kids at Mass General Hospital. He's also the author of three books, including Changeable, uh, handpicked by Malcolm Gladwell, and Susan Kane for their next Big Idea Club. He's one of the world's top-rated thought leaders and keynote speakers at conferences, Many of you I sent out prior to this call, doctor. We sent out your uh, famous TEDx talk. Um, but we look forward to digging in and, uh, and getting to hear more about um, our connection and how we, how we parent from a healthy place. I think we'll have some live questions. We have some, uh, some uh, anonymous questions that came in that we'll ask, but um, Let's let's get this started, and with that, Rabbi Jacobson, perhaps uh, lead the program off if you can. First of all, thank you so much, uh, my dear friend Rabbi Eichenam Polter. Thank you to Fresh Start, to the whole community, to the leadership. Thank you, of course, uh, Dr. Stuart Ablon for gracing us here this uh, wonderful afternoon, and thank you for everybody joining us from Fresh Start. And uh, I think we're going to go right, right into it. I've had the privilege of doing uh, a few podcasts with Fresh Start, which is an institution dedicated to really trauma healing. And, um, you know, maybe I'm going to phrase it as a question. You know, we always, uh, what do they say? A wise question is half the answer. So before we get to hear the wise and perceptive and perhaps life-changing words of uh, Dr. Ablon, I want to ask this question, Dr. We have been taught for hundreds of years, we come from a tradition that's thousands of years old, it's called Judaism, you've heard of it, and there's a very big line, a very famous line, I'll say it in Hebrew, everyone here joining it has heard this line many years growing up, there's nothing that stands in the way of will, if there's a will, there's a way, don't say you can't, 
Say the truth. You don't want. Comes Dr. Stewart and tells us, no, 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 no. Nothing to do with your will. <laughs> the question is if you can or you can't. Are you asking of us to say that the, all the neuro, neuroscientific research of the last 30, 40 years and all of your research and your colleagues is really telling us to uproot from our system this ancient tradition that it's really just give me the ability and I'll do it. Don't tell me to want. That's my question. It's a great question. Um, And, you know, people often say where there's a will, there's a way, right? Um, And I just think it's not that simple. It's more complicated. Uh, And as I think you know and you're alluding to, I like to say where there's a skill, there's a way. Now, the reality is it's, as I said, not that simple. It's all not all about will and it's not all about skill either. It's about some combination of will and skill. But yes, a half a century of research in the neurosciences has shown us that all the will in the world won't make things possible, that one desperately wants to be possible if one struggles with the skills necessary to make those things possible. So when our teachers or our parents or we ourselves have told students, children, or we told ourselves, you're lazy, stop being lazy. And I'm going to punish you so that you won't be lazy. In other words, instead of wanting to be lazy, you want to succeed. What was the error? What is it that we all failed or still fail to understand? Well, look, you know, there are a lot of things that are passed down from generation to generation that are rather wise and uh, can be instructive for us for generations to come. But I think we also need to be clear that we humans tend to hold on to pieces of information or beliefs uh, long after many of them have been disproven. And one of the things that's been disproven is that when children struggle to sort of manage their behavior or to... Uh, do what we want them to do as parents, as educators, et cetera. In other words, to meet our expectations, that it is not just as simple as they aren't trying hard enough to do those things. And ironically, children who struggle to meet our expectations, they're probably trying harder than anybody else because it doesn't come naturally to them and they suffer as a result. So they tend to actually be putting a lot of effort into trying to meet our expectations but again, lack the skill to be able to do so. And I do think it can be very damaging because if a child is trying very hard to meet our expectations, but struggles with the skills to do so, and we're constantly sending them the message that we don't think they're trying hard enough. Well, um, as my grandfather always told me, if you give a dog a name, eventually they will answer to it. In other words, if you treat a child like they're lazy, unmotivated, don't care, aren't trying hard enough, and suggest that to them enough, they will likely start to believe it. Uh, It'll become a part of their self-concept. And so it is very dangerous to treat children as simply lazy or unmotivated when something else might be getting in their way. Okay. So here's my question, Doc. Okay. How do we know how to make that distinction? If my child or my student is not performing, they're not going to bed, they're not ready to take a bath, no homework, they're misbehaving in the class, 
They're not reviewing the material. They're not listening. They're daydreaming. They're fighting with their siblings. Whatever. They're making a mess in the kitchen. How do I know to say they simply can't? Or, no, I could discipline them. (laughs) They don't want. Is there a way of knowing? Or do I always have to assume they just can't? Uh, Well, first of all, let's be clear about something. Is Actually, you know, discipline um, doesn't mean punish. Discipline means to instruct and teach. So I advocate for discipline. I don't advocate for punitive discipline, uh, just to clarify that. but You advocate for discipline that takes into account what skills this child needs to learn. Correct. And look, I, your question was a great one. How do I know the difference? You're not really going to know. And to be really frank with you, I don't trust our perspective to get the answer to that question right because we're not coming to it from a calm, well-reasoned place. When we are asked to make that decision, is my child, is this uh, student in my classroom, are they just not trying hard enough or are they struggling? We're usually frustrated in that moment with them. So it's much more likely that we are going to interpret that uh, and answer that question from a place of frustration. And what I tell people is, look, the easier thing to do is pick the safer answer. Because let me put it to you this way. If you assume that the child is struggling and treat them in a way that you're trying to help them and it turns out they just weren't trying hard enough, you haven't lost a lot. However, if you assume that they aren't trying hard enough when actually they're trying extraordinarily hard but are unable to do it, lack the skill to do so, then you're headed down that dangerous path that I told you about before. You're abusing them. You're abusing them basically. Well, it's strong language, but uh, you're certainly uh, negatively impacting their self-esteem, their self-concept, their understanding of themselves, and you're misleading them because it's actually, it's wrong. And and Rabbi, you know, but one of the things I would recommend is, you know, we look at this um, through the context of, of uh, you know, other historical examples. And look, when I was a child in school, if I was struggling to read, people would have assumed that I was lazy or dumb because that's what we used to think. Now, fast forward to today, we understand that children who are struggling to read, they're actually trying harder than anybody else because it doesn't come naturally to them. And for instance, they may struggle with dyslexia. They may have a hard time decoding words. We now understand that's not a lack of effort. That's a learning disability. So we used to mistreat those kids and we lost a lot of them in our schools. Um, thankfully, I don't think we do that as often. We still do sometimes when it comes to learning disabilities, but we have we, we have to make that paradigm shift too when it comes to behavior because it's the same thing. It's just a different kind of learning disability. It, you know, instead of reading and math and writing, people, not just children, who struggle to manage their behavior, they're struggling with other skills. Instead of reading and math and writing, it's things like flexibility, frustration tolerance, problem solving. Those are the skills that kids, students struggle with that affect their ability to meet our expectation, manage their behavior, et cetera. So I'm a teacher in a classroom, say, and one child is really, so to called misbehaving. He's disrupting the class. He's bothering other children. He's creating fights. Walk me through that moment. I'm frustrated. I have 25 kids. It's hard. It's, it's hard on a good day. Walk me through. Now that I have learned to expand my horizons, yeah. and I don't want to destroy this child. I want to build this child. Right. 
help so walk me through he, those he, moments. What, what am I supposed to do? Well, instead of thinking to yourself, he's just looking for attention or trying to get out of things or things like that, that leads you to certain interventions that are, you know, mostly around rewards, consequences, punishments, things like that. Instead of that, what I want people to think is this is a child trying their best. Now, if you can do that, you bring an empathic stance, you are much less likely to get agitated yourself. And one of the things we know is there's nothing like, you know, what we call in professional jargon, a dysregulated child to call, cause an adult to get dysregulated. And then you're off to the races. If you can maintain this mindset that I'm talking about, it helps us to be able to stay calm. Because whatever I suggest a teacher or a parent does in a situation like this, it's not going to be helpful at all if that adult is not able to access the smart part of their brain where that information resides. So the first goal is keeping us adults calm. And, and that's why a large part of our work is trying to teach this mindset and, and really teach a what we call sort of a philosophy, which is kids do well if they can. Not kids do well if they want to, but kids do well if they can. And if a kid could do well, they would do well. And if they're not doing well, let's remember, this is about skill, not will. I've never met a child who prefers doing poorly to doing well. So first is, is that mindset. Then we can get into, okay, so how do you handle these particular situations? And what do you do so that you can achieve a better outcome? And I'm, ha I'm happy to go there now if you want. <laughs> Please. Okay. Well, Please. You're holding my hand. You're holding my hand. And you're helping me go away from my amygdala and my reptilian brain into my limbic and prefrontal cortex. Correct. So that I could, yeah. instead of being triggered by this child and like, you're driving me crazy and now it's a five-year-old against another five-year-old or a 10-year-old against another 10-year-old. Right. You want a 50-year-old talking yeah. to a seven-year-old. Exactly. So so well, help me, help me maintain thing, my age. <laughs> yes. Well, the first thing that's going to help with that is helping people realize that kids who struggle to manage their behavior, they don't misbehave out of the blue for no apparent reason. It is not with no rhyme or no reason. It happens under predictable circumstances. And when are those predictable circumstances? When they're faced with some demand, dilemma, expectation, problem, situation, you name it, that taps into their lagging skills. So in other words, this is a long-winded way of saying challenging behavior is predictable. And if it's predictable, when's the worst time to try to handle it? In the heat of the moment where you 50-something-year-old is starting to decline and regress back into uh, a much younger age. So the first thing we do is we teach parents, educators, you name it, any adult around a kid to make a list, a list of with as much specificity as possible, when, where, under what circumstances, when we ask her to do what, does she struggle? And once we have that list, we're staring at a list of predictable times that she's going to struggle. The worst time to work on them is when those things happen, let's start getting proactive. And so what we tell people then is, all right, you can identify one of these things at a time, and let's start working on them proactively when the child is calm and are calm and have had a chance to prepare for the conversation. Because otherwise, it's just not going to go that well in the heat of the moment, to be honest. We have somebody that looks like who... Um, oh, go ahead. I, I muted them. Go ahead. Now, okay. if I can ask for the three-minute version, 
You go to Harvard Medical School, you get into the world of research, obviously with children and education. Uh, when is this epiphany? What happens to you? What do you see that allows you, doctor, to experience this epiphany and saying, you know, we got it all wrong? Could you give us the, the short version of what happened to you? Did you see something? Yeah, it's not really an, an epiphany. It's it, it developed over time. I mean, um, a couple of things for me. I was working with very challenging children in very challenging circumstances in places like inpatient hospitals and severely traumatized kids in residential treatment facilities, correctional facilities, things like that. And it was just so abundantly clear to me that these kids were miserable and that they didn't lack the motivation. They had more motivation than anybody, all, 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 motivation just to, to not feel the way they did. And that was coupled with early on in my career, meeting somebody who was uh, sort of studying the neuropsychology of, of these children. Um, and, uh, and honestly, at the same time, I had a sort of parallel track in my own career where I was studying what is it about different interventions that are helpful. And the one thing we always come back to in that area of research is it is always the degree of helping relationship between helper and healthy. In other words, parent and child, teacher and student. It is always the degree of helping relationship that predicts changes in behavior, positive outcomes. And I don't know how anybody's going to help a kid change their behavior through a helping relationship when they're mad at the kid all the time and blaming the child. So all of these came together to me to say, we need a different approach, one that's born of empathy and non-judgmental acceptance, because that's what a relationship's all about, a helping relationship. And one that also helps people see these kids for who they really are. Because when you look at the research, there's not a kid who behaves in a challenging way consistently, who doesn't have underlying struggles in a number of different, what we would call neurocognitive domains. That kid doesn't exist. Wow. So the language that many of us grew up with, and we still use to ourselves and others and children, is there ever room for this language or it's cruel? For example, stop being lazy. If you would want, you would do it. Be a mensch. Be a human being. Uh, grow up. Don't be so selfish. Uh, don't allow your evil inclination to control you. Are all these expressions really cruel and ignorant, or is there ever room for them? Uh, well, of the ones you've suggested, it's hard for me to imagine that any of them are particularly helpful to change a kid's behavior. And to the extent that a child is struggling with the lack of skill, not will, I think they are damaging. Yes. And most importantly, you're saying it's not even true. No, it's not. Okay, so forgive my stupid question. There's no such a thing as a lazy human being. Well, here, this is where, Rabbi, it gets a little bit more complicated, because when we talk about a lack of motivation, we need to be clear that there's different types of motivation. You know, there's extrinsic motivation, like being externally motivated by things, and there's intrinsic motivation as well, which is far more important. And are there kids, and, and let's not just put the blame right on kids here, adults who struggle to harness internal drive to do things? Absolutely. Of course. But it's just not that simple that you can sort of tell somebody to try harder because intrinsic motivation, the, the, the part that the type of motivation that's most important, it, you know, there's a lot of research. There's a whole area called uh, self-determination theory that studies internal motivation. 
And what do we find? Well, we find that for us humans, not just kids, for you, for me, for anybody on this call together today, for us to be motivated internally, we need to have some basic psychological needs met. And those needs are things like mastery, a sense of mastery, of you know, being competent, a sense of autonomy or independence, and a sense of connectedness or relatedness, either to people around us or to a purpose, a larger purpose. And, you know, those aren't things you can just will yourself to have. Um, so, so motivation is a whole lot more complicated than just try harder. So what, what you're suggesting perhaps is, and I think this is, this is a very profound lesson for all of us. You know, we have in our tradition, the religious tradition, this idea that we have, they call it in Hebrew, yetzer tov, yetzer hara, a positive inclination and a negative inclination. You know, the inner voice that, that is moral and, and, and helps you gravitate towards the productive and the loving and the kind and opposite inclinations. And I think what you're teaching us here is, and perhaps this is the future of enlightened and expansive redemptive consciousnesses, that we always, what we always call the evil or negative inclination is really much more about the part of us that simply doesn't have the ability, yeah, doesn't well, have me, the skill. Let me give you just one very concrete example. You know, we, we all do have evil inclinations or what I would call um, impulses that are not wonderful impulses. And what we do as adults is we check those impulses. And that's a skill. It's called impulse control. You know, most two and three-year-olds don't have impulse control. They have lots of inclinations that aren't so wonderful and they act upon them immediately, right? The older we get, if all goes well developmentally, we develop better skills at controlling our impulses. Uh, But the impulses haven't gone away. They're there. We control them. You know, I I always tell people, imagine that as you go through your day that you did or said the first thing that came to your mind throughout the course of the day. And some people find themselves very amused by this, um, but most people also realize the world would be a very unpleasant place to be in if we all said and did the first thing that came to our mind. So the, the inclination's there, but we use skills to, for instance, control those impulses. Now, if I can take it one step further, here's the sad irony. There's a whole bunch of kids who might be seven, let's say, but have a two-year-old's impulse control. Or maybe they're 15 and have an eight-year-old's impulse control. So there's a developmental lag there. So they do a bunch of stuff they shouldn't do. And then what do we historically do? We punish them. Which is sadly ironic because punishments require impulse control to be effective in the first place. In other words... The next time that child's going to do something you don't want them to do that you punished them for, they need to stop in the moment and say to themselves, okay, wait, if I do that, what's going to happen? Oh, right. I'm going to get that punishment that I got on last Tuesday, which I really didn't like. So instead of doing that thing, I'm going to do something else. In other words, they must have the impulse control to benefit from the consequence in the first place, which is sadly ironic because the kids who get the most consequences are the kids without much impulse control, who can't even benefit from the consequences. Wow. So you're teaching us that all this research is showing us that when I'm relating to my children or my student or any child, I always want to come from a place of really believing in their goodness, in their willingness to do the right thing, the good thing, the productive thing. And if that's not happening, I want to ask, what is bothering them? What is hurting them? 
Yeah, we want to start from the perspective that kids do well if they can, that all kids want to do well. And if they're not doing well, it's because they're struggling with certain skills required to do well. And or they've got good concerns, perspectives, points of views that need to be heard and need to be understood and need to be taken into consideration as we go about problem solving. And I'm sure we'll get into that in more detail. We had here once uh, a therapist who said that he was talking to teachers and he said, you know, when a child or principals, when a child comes late to school, he says, what I would do is instead of calling him into the office and giving him a penalty, whatever it is for coming late, I would say, wow, you came late, which means it was hard to come to school. Uh-huh. And yet you came. Yes. Here's, a Danish, here's a Danish. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I would argue, be curious what's going on. If they're late, you know, maybe this is a big success that they're only that far late. Um, but what's happening? Let's understand. Let's uh, approach this from a place of curiosity. And, uh, you know, you may have heard the mantra, be curious, not furious. That ser- that'll serve us very well. Approach this from a place of curiosity. And look, how would you feel as an adult if you showed up late for something and people responded to you the way we respond to kids who, you know, arrive late to class? It's humiliating. Um, so really, we're asking us to treat children with humanity and dignity as well, to be frank. Right. So so essentially, when I'm seeing a child, you know, misbehaving or, or performing pretty badly, it's basically his or her own survival mechanism, survival skill, where they don't believe they can do anything else but this in order to yeah, I'm not even sure, though, Rabbi, that it's that well organized. I mean, that that's uh, assuming there's a fair amount of sort of, uh, you know, organized response from the child. Many times it's just, uh, you know, their particular flavor of dysregulation that comes out because they get overwhelmed by emotion and frustration in the heat of the moment. And they can't, uh, you know, manage that frustration and, and think straight. And that's what you see. In your famous TED Talk, you give the, it became already a timeless classic example, because I heard it from my wife a few years ago, uh, that when the child doesn't want to, he's not getting dressed in the morning, and he's missing the bus every day, and instead of penalizing him or screaming at him, try to understand why he's not getting dressed, and of course, in your example, he was scared to stay upstairs alone. And the solution was get dressed downstairs with mommy and the other siblings. So that was which, requ- which requires some flexibility on the adults' uh, end of things as well, which is where this gets a little bit more challenging because, you know, it always takes two to tango. It's, uh, it's not as simple as a child's skills determine the outcome of interactions with adults. It, it's the combination of a child's skills and an adult's skills at the same time. Now, when the child is not regulated, what are the skills that the adults need in order to help them solve the problem, in order to help them to focus on what their needs are, what their frustrations are? Because very often they just shut down and like, I don't want to get dressed. I don't want to get dressed. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Well, most of the time when a child is beginning to escalate or to get dysregulated, what we tend to do is remind them that that behavior is not okay. And that if they continue with that, there's likely to be a consequence. And all that does is throw emotional fuel on the fire and further dysregulate. And they become even more anxious. Exactly. So, uh, you know, what do you really want to do? Well, (laughs) I'll tell you the most powerful human regulator we have 
is empathy. Empathy is the most powerful way that we can regulate another human. And it's not just kids. And we, we literally can control another person's heart rate, um, blood pressure uh, with our words. Uh, we can do that, you know, for, for evil or for good. And what does it mean to do it for good? Empathy calms people. It regulates people. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of us don't quite understand really what empathy means. We think empathy is saying something like, I'm sorry, you're so upset about this, but <laughs> um, that's not empathy. You know, the, the definition of empathy is to understand. And so what we try to teach adults to do is to try to understand what's going on for a kid in a particular situation, what their concern is, what their perspective is, what's hard about the situation for them. Now, as you can imagine, in the heat of the moment, that's hard to do. And it's hard to do for kids. It's hard for them to let us know what's going on. So, you know, a lot of times what you need to do is you need to uh, provide a fair amount of reassurance that this is different than the kinds of interactions they're used to. Because let's be clear, most kids have had a billion exchanges with adults where they get upset and the adult, um, you know, tells them that out. okay. Yeah. So, you know, it, kids are, are, it's understandable that they'd be a little hesitant and wary of what this is going to be like. But, you know, for me, I, for instance, some of ways I try to calm kids, my own kids, other kids down is by letting them know this is not a situation where they're in trouble, where I'm going to try to make them do something, uh, where I'm going to punish them. Instead, what I try to let them know is I just want to understand. And more particularly, I'll say things like, um, you know, I know there must be an important reason that, fill in the blank, you, you know, you're not getting dressed, that you haven't come downstairs. I know there must be an important reason that you're late. I know there's an important reason you haven't started your work. And I just want to understand what that's all about. Don't worry. You're not in trouble. I, I want to understand. Now, you can see, Rabbi, how that's also a much easier process, though, when it's outside the heat of the moment, uh, when there's less frustration right there in the room. Maybe in order to be able to exercise the muscle of empathy with our children, we first need to learn how to exercise it towards ourselves. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is one of the things I tell people is our philosophy that we apply to kids. Kids do well if they can. It doesn't just apply to kids. Uh, parents do well if they can. Educators do well if they can. Adults do well if they can. We're all doing the best we can to handle what the world is throwing at us, including our children's behavior. Um, in uh, you know our best way, given the skills we have. And let's be clear, some of us will struggle with flexibility, frustration tolerance, problem solving, the same skills that I mentioned earlier. And you know we've got to work on developing those skills ourselves, but it starts with not beating ourselves up about it and recognizing that you know, we're doing the best we can and we can develop these skills as well. This, you know, this is, uh, we sort of skipped by this, but there's some really good news here about this being about skill, not will. Because if it's all about will, you're in this very unpleasant and unproductive place of trying to motivate a kid externally to do things. If this is about skill, skills can be built. And one of the things we've shown with our research is you can build skills, the kind of skills I'm talking about, with kids with severe delays who've been severely traumatized in some of the most challenging circumstances. You can help them build their skills. So we know it's possible with really virtually any kid. Have you found over the years and the decades that, you know, the pushback against your philosophy, has it become weaker? Have you had a lot of pushback? Like, 
uh, we've had a lot of pushback and it has become weaker, which is one of the things I take tremendous heart in. And I think that there's much more empathy, compassion and understanding there than there was when I uh, was in the beginning of my career. Now, that's interesting. I, what, yeah, I'm sorry. Finish. No, no, I was just going to say the only thing is I wish I could say and then as a result, we treat these kids dramatically differently. But, you know, it always happens that once we learn sort of we learn that how we've been thinking about things may be wrong and we've got some new ideas, it still takes quite a while until those new ideas translate into a different behavior from the adults as well. So that's where we're now. I think that the shift in thinking has started to happen, but our practices haven't changed as much as I would hope and need to change a lot more. Well, well, I think you mentioned this before, when most people experience their own shortcomings, don't we instinctively blame ourselves? Like, what's wrong with me? I'm such a bad person. So maybe if that's my go-to place, that's what I do with my children too. <laughs> yeah, and look, I imagine a lot of people uh, who are joining us today, many people can probably think of times where they felt really badly about themselves because they haven't met someone's expectations, including their own expectations, or they've handled something in a way that they really didn't want to handle. And they beat themselves up for it because they think that they're a bad person for handling it that way. And, uh, you know, when you, you, you try to approach this through the lens of skill, not will, it affords you some more kindness with yourself that, you know, we're all, we're human animals doing our best in this complicated world to exercise skills. And sometimes we can't pull it off. So I got an email from a principal after one of our podcasts, which focused on these types of themes. The principal wrote to me, and I quote almost verbatim, you are partially responsible for creating a new generation of youth that feels entitlement, they're spoiled, they don't respect their parents and their teachers. We all went through struggles, and we learned to put one foot ahead of another foot and march forward and live productive lives. And these kids get away with murder because of people like you. Well, first of all, that's not true that we all learned to do that. No, some percentage of people did, and a whole bunch of people didn't and aren't doing so well and haven't been doing so well. So that's actually not true, first of all. Um, but then, you know, there was some recent research that I found fascinating where it, uh, it looked at sort of narrative research at how um, generations tend to think of about the generation after them. And you can go back hundreds of years and every single generation of adults has thought that the next generation, the generation of kids is lazy, spoiled, entitled, unmotivated, and the world is falling apart as a result. So this is an age old theme. Um, but, uh, you know, let me be clear. I'm not um, advocating in any way, shape or form for letting kids do whatever they want to do. That's not what we're talking about here. That's talk what we're talking about is when a child is struggling to meet expectations, trying to understand why and collaborate with them to help them meet those expectations, which, by the way, is hard work. It's not passive. It's not permissive. Um, it, you know, it's not enabling. Um, so really, that's a fundamental misunderstanding, honestly. What was the main reasons for people giving you backlash, especially early on in your research? What were I they mean, telling you? What are you doing wrong? I would describe it as mostly conventional wisdom. You know, people believe stuff for a long time. that's wrong, including things like the world is flat. 
right? Um, so, you know, this is, these are just ideas that were passed down to, from generation to generation. But I think the other piece is our own dysregulation. Because here's the thing. When a kid isn't doing what we want them to do, and we feel like our authority as a parent, as a teacher is being challenged, we feel disrespected. And when we're disrespected and feel like our authority is challenged, you know, we aren't thinking with the smart part of our brain anymore. And what we do is we reach for power and control. We try to gain the power and control back. And, you know, that sends us to a, a, a punitive place. So, uh, you know, we're, we're mostly not thinking with the smart part of our brain when we respond to things like this. And it's taken some time to help people understand that. And as we've understood the brain better, uh, that's been a big part of things too and helping people sort of understand how these things go. So a parent emails me, says, my son or daughter is addicted to screens six, seven hours a day from when they come home to school. They're addicted to screens. This mm-hmm. is their pleasure. This is their go-to place. This is how they calm themselves. This is how they regulate themselves. They're constantly getting into, f- getting into fights with their children about this. Mm-hmm. Could you guide this parent through an approach that would be loving, sure. meaningful, and productive? Sure. Well, so for, let me take one step back first to say that it, pick any problem that, that somebody sort of uh, throws my way and says, how would you handle this? And the first thing I say to them is I, I, I like to think we've sort of a simple framework that what we say is you really only have three options for how to handle any problem, including the one you just proposed, right? Um, and in our work, we refer to these as sort of your, your three plans, if you will, or three options for how to solve a problem. One option is to try to impose your will to make the child do what you want them to do. Okay, we call that option A, if you will, or plan A. Um, and it's the one we go to the most. And I'll just tell you that, you know, that parent could decide to do plan A and they would take the screens away or away for a certain amount of time. And it would partially address the adult concern that they're on it too much, but it would probably cause all kinds of conflict, maybe escalate the child's behavior, disrupt their relationship. And I'm not sure the child would learn anything about how to manage and regulate their behavior any better. But that's one option. Doing what we call plan A. Uh, the second option, B, which I want to get into in detail, is where we're going to collaborate with the child to solve the problem. But there's a third option, and the third option is what we would call plan C. And that's where you decide to drop your expectation, not forever, but for now, and sort of solve it the way the child wants it solved. So the first thing I would ask the parent is, okay, you got three options. Let's decide which option you're going to use based upon what you want to accomplish. If you want them off the screen, um, even if all kinds of bad things happen <laughs> as a result, okay, plan A. If you just want to keep the calm in your house, uh, that's more important than uh, trying to reduce their screen time. You've got plan C at your disposal. But, and I think this is the question you're asking, what if the parent is worried about the amount of screen time but wants to handle it in a way that doesn't harm the relationship, is empathic and understanding, and hopefully helps the child build some skills? That would be what we call B, plan B option, the, you know, the, the third of those options. And here's what I would say. We teach people, think of it as like three different steps, okay? The first step, you're not going to be surprised by this, is what we call the empathy step, where you try to understand the child's concern, perspective, point of view. So you don't have this conversation when the child is on a screen. That's not going to go well. 
Uh, you pick a time where they're not on a screen proactively, where they're in a good place and regulated, and you simply ask them for information. You become a detective. You ask them a lot of questions. You reflect what you hear from them. You reassure them that you're really just trying to understand where they're coming from. And you get their perspective and point of view on the table. And only once you really feel like you understand, and, and, and I think this with this example you're giving, it's especially important to point out that empathy does not mean agreeing or disagreeing. It simply means understanding. So you could be hearing all kinds of things from the child that you patently disagree with. That's fine. You don't have to love what they're doing on their screens all day long to empathize with them. You just need to try to understand where they're coming from. Once you do that, you move to what we call the second step or ingredient, and you share your adult concern or perspective, why it is that you're worried about all the screen time. And I'll tell you, having millions of conversations with parents about this, it's not good enough to just say, because it's bad for your brain. Um, just like we try to drill down and get the kids concerned to be as specific as possible, I do the same with adults. We really got to be clear. Is it that we're the amount of time they're spending on it is getting in the way of their homework? Is it getting in the way of them interacting with other kids? Is it the content of the things that they're doing on there that's bothering us? Is it all of the above? We need to be specific. And the reason I was doing this with my hands before is this is how you know you're doing what we call plan B. You have to have two sets of concerns on the table. Because if you only have the child's concern or perspective, you're probably headed for plan C. And if you only have the adults, you're headed for plan A. So the way you know you're collaborating with your child and the way I'd recommend is you must have both sets of concerns on the table. You heard them out. Then you ask them to hear you out with your, not your solution, but your concerns and perspective. And then comes the last ingredient. Then you're simply inviting them to collaborate. And you're saying, so we got to try to figure out a solution to the problem that works for you, addresses your concern, because I heard what your concerns and perspective was, and, not but, but and works for me or us, addresses our perspective. And one of the most powerful things you do, we suggest adults do in this uh, process, is to then look at the child and say, so do you have any ideas? Zip it, wait, see what the child comes up with. And then what you do is you simply walk them through a process, whether they have a great idea, a terrible idea, no ideas, whatever it is, you simply walk them through a process where you're trying to arrive at any solution that is mutually satisfactory, realistic, and doable. And I can tell you with this example you gave, it's not a one-time shot. You're going to have to have multiple conversations iteratively over time to get to a reasonable, durable, mutually satisfactory solution. But the good news is, if you do that, each conversation you have will be enhancing, not harming the relationship, and asking the child to guess what? Practice a whole bunch of skills related to flexibility, frustration tolerance, problem solving. And our research has shown when you do this, you use this kind of process, you not only reduce the behavioral challenges and get your expectations met, but you improve the relationship and you help the child build neurocognitive skills. So I know that was long-winded, Rabbi, but I wanted to give a framework, not just a one-off solution or one-off answer, so that whatever problem people are having, they can think about how do I apply this sort of three-step process, if you will. Wow. 
And I just want to re-emphasize something I thought very sensitive and profound. You said that the best way for parents not to get heated and be triggered in an anxious way is by exercising the muscle of empathy, of attributing positive and noble intentions to their children. They're trying the best they can. Correct. And this is very hard if, for instance, right. even in the course of this conversation, if the child is being disrespectful, right, um, angry, etc., it, it will trigger us. It'll be very hard to maintain that status, uh, which is why we tell people, you know, repeat the mantra of kids do well if they can in your head again and again and again. Say to yourself, as much as this is making me miserable, I'm sure it's making them as much or more miserable. Mm. Um, kids do well if they can. Try to embrace that. So this child who may be saying some very disgusting or repulsive things about their parents to their face, is it really appropriate to say this child must be struggling with something really, really, really painful to be able to speak this way? Absolutely. So the last thing you want to do is take it personal. Exactly. And they also may feel very misunderstood. I mean, you know, honestly, by the time adults come to an approach like ours and start to utilize it, they've had a lot of conflict. And they've used a lot of what I referred to as plan A in their exchanges with the kid. And each one of those exchanges to the kid has felt like they're being misunderstood. And, you know, that leads to a a fair amount of resentment as well. So, um, you know, resentment can can breed some bad behavior too. So Rabbi, Rabbi YY, I, we, we got some interesting live questions I want to jump into. Um, this is incredible, but um, on some of the topics you mentioned, we could probably, Dr. Avalon, did we book an hour and a half or a week and a half? I don't remember offhand which one. We, <laughs> an which hour and a half for starters. A year and a half. Can I ask Dr. Avalon one more question before we go to yes. anybody's questions? One last question. Since especially Fresh Start deals with so much trauma, you have seen, I don't know how many, you want to give us a number of how many children you've seen over the years? Is there such a number, may I ask? For me? Oh, boy. I, you know, I don't know because we do, uh, I have my own practice for the last, you know, several decades, but I also do a tremendous amount of teaching and consulting and implementing in all kinds of systems. So, uh, you know, I can't put a number to that. We, I know we reach hundreds of thousands of kids and families a year. Right. So it's important to emphasize this, that Dr. Ablin is coming from experience with hundreds and thousands of children. It's not that he spoke to five children over 40 years. It's just important to put that out because, you know, some people are going to argue, you know, where did he get his experience? But I wanted to ask you, you know, dealing so many years with trauma and seeing children who are traumatized, I want to ask two questions. Could you maybe tell us two or three or one stories of, number one, how you identify a child who's suffering from trauma, and number two, how did you get to their heart? Could you tell us maybe some of your hardest, most complex, maybe most painful cases where you really struggled, but you broke through to their soul? Sure. You know, look, first thing to know is any kind of trauma, whether it's chronic stress or discrete traumatic events, you know, those impact brain development. And now that we know enough about the brain, what we realize is that the ways that trauma and chronic stress, toxic stress impacts brain development is it delays development in the, in the areas of the brain that do just the kinds of things I was talking about earlier, help us be flexible, tolerate frustration, problem solve. So um, 
and, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, work out there these days talking about how to be trauma sensitive or trauma informed. The most important thing you got to realize is that utilizing power and control to try to manipulate somebody's behavior is the polar opposite of how you want to respond to somebody who has developmental trauma. Uh, and instead, what you're trying to do is you're trying to actually reduce the power differential that is so dysregulating to people who've been traumatized, but without losing authority. Um, and, you know, I think this approach is one way to do that is to maintain our adult authority, but to not do it um, by leveraging power and control. Now, you know, I, I know there's a lot of questions, so I don't want to drone on too long here, but you did ask me for an example. And, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I have a very recent example of not, and somebody wrote in here in the uh, chat about that this all could apply to ourselves, to adults and children. I've been working with a, uh, a 30 year old man who, um, when I was asked to, to consult with him, um, he hadn't left his bedroom in quite some time. This is a 30 year old blind man who hadn't left his bedroom in a long time and, and barely got dressed most of days. Um, no, wasn't keeping up with any personal hygiene, um, had recently been hospitalized. And I went, I had to go to his home to meet with him because he wouldn't leave his bedroom, much less his house. Um, and, you know, the first times I tried to talk with him, he told me to leave. And he told me in no uncertain times to get the hell out of there. And I tried to practice what I preached. And I, I empathized with that he wanted me to get out of there, tried to ask him some questions about why. He wasn't ready to tell me, so I left. And I kept coming back and back and back. And sometimes those meetings lasted 30 seconds. And sometimes they ended up lasting five or 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I'll tell you what, he just had an incredible holiday season. Uh, this is one year later. And um, he was laughing with me in my last appointment with him about how he used to yell, Dr. Ablon can leave now. Uh, and he used to try to chase me around. And fortunately, I had a little bit of a head start since he was blind. So I could I could quickly get out of the way before he tried to attack me. Um, you know, and, and now he fills me in on what's going on for him. And basically, it's because I think I've created a sense of trust with him. And the worst thing to do with anybody with a trauma history is to sort of run roughshod over their concerns, their point of view, to not listen and respond to what they're telling you they need. So, you know, in short, listen hard, don't impose your will, um, be curious and invite people to the table to solve problems in a way that they're comfortable with in a time frame they're comfortable with. And the same applies to things like school refusal. I've got a six year old I'm working with now uh, who was refusing to go to school. Actually, interesting, a family who moved back um, to Israel. And one year later, moved back to Boston again. And a child who'd been struggling um, in school, who had then figured it out, was doing well, um, it all fell apart again And when she came back to uh, her school in the States here and she refused to go to school. And in essence, I used the same kind of a process with her. Told her, I'm not going to make you go to school. Clearly, there's things about going to school that are too overwhelming for you right now. So we're not going to force you. No plan A here. Um, I really just want to understand what it is. And I promise you that I'm not going to try to make you go to school. The only time I'll say to you, I think it's time to go to school is when you tell me that you feel like what you're worried about, your concerns, that those are addressed and you feel comfortable doing that. Then we'll entertain it, but not until then. So, so can you tell me what, what's going on? 
And, and that, in short, is the kind of approach that I find to be most helpful when it comes to uh, particularly to developmental trauma. And wh- what's happening with the six-year-old? Is there, or it's the middle of the story? Uh, this is one. This one is uh, early going. I mean, I, I literally uh, just began c- consulting with the family and uh, starting to build a relationship, which is the most important piece. And she's willing to do things like. Uh, drive to the school, stay in the parking lot a little bit, have the guidance counselor come out to meet her, things like that, which is, you know, if we want to use fancy terminology, what we're doing is what we call systematic desensitization. We're doing a form of exposure therapy, but making sure that she is in control. She's co-author of it. She's collaborating with us because that's the other thing. Control is so important for people who've been traumatized. Now, what's interesting is, if you give somebody who's been traumatized sort of sole control over a process, that can be overwhelming too. So what we try to do in our approach is give a kid a lot of control without sole responsibility for the process. Mm. And that's why it's collaborative, but they've got a lot of control. They are co-authors. I, I just want to chime in um, on the chat. Uh, Joseph was mentioning about teachers and parents not being aware at the end of this We'll have Dr. Ablog just give a a 90-second elevator pitch on his work at Think Kids because they have programs built exactly for that, of bringing the awareness and the tools to both the educational system as well as parents, et cetera. Uh, But we'll we'll get to that towards the end of this call. Um, But Fremit, are you there now? Yes. Hi. Thank you you so much. Um, My question is, I, I, I... I believe in giving children a choice, like you you said a lot. I I I, I do it with my kids all the time. I, I let them be in control of their lives, and I give them choices more than. And I'm trying to advise them, and I don't have to control their life and you know, shape them. It's not my job. It's my job to put them in the right direction. My question is, how do I know when when it comes to like kids these days? They have little respect. And the way I was brought up is that it's all about respect, 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 right? But when do I know if it's my triggers coming in the way or my child being disrespectful? It's because I have so many times, I have teen, preteens, teenagers, and, and it's like, okay, I know that I'm being triggered a lot by their behaviors, but also they need to be more respectful. Like, how do I juggle? Where do I know where I start and I finish and when it's the child? Yes. Well, um, you know, you do want to be empathic and understanding, but you also have a very important concern, which is that they not behave in disrespectful ways. And it's not just disrespectful ways out in the world, but to you as their parent. I mean, that's a reasonable, very okay perspective and concern to have. And so when I was walking through that process of how to collaborate with a child and you get to the point where you get to raise your concern that's the time where you say what I'm worried about is that I feel like when you say or do these things like that, it, it doesn't feel respectful to me. I feel disrespected by that. And I imagine that you don't want to disrespect your mother, um, but it must be a struggle for you. So we need to come up with solutions to address your concerns and so that your behavior isn't disrespectful to me. So in other words, you can pursue respectful behavior collaboratively with your children. But one thing I, I just want to also clarify is, um, just be careful. Giving your child choices, though, is not necessarily what I would call a, that plan B process, because you can actually give kids choices and still be doing what I call plan A, 
uh, I actually call it multiple choice plan A, which is you could be saying to a child, here are the options you get to choose. That's not really what I'm prescribing in terms of a problem solving process, because um, you want them helping to do the thinking to come up with the solutions as well. And they're going to be much more invested in those solutions because if you hand down the options, they're less invested. And the react the reality is you might get less respectful behavior when they feel like they're just being sort of, they're on the receiving end of the options in front of them. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not choice. It's, it's what? I, look, I, I, I don't know. I'm not exactly clear why a child would choose to disrespect their mother on a, on a recurrent basis, unless they had good concerns and perspectives they feel were not being heard and listened to or struggle and or struggled with the skills necessary to be respectful. See, that's a really important piece here. Respect is not just a choice. Respect involves a whole bunch of skills, including what I described before as impulse control. I mean, I'm sure you've been in situations where your impulse is to say something rather disrespectful to your own children or to someone else. I know I have, but I utilize the skill of, oh, don't say that. That would not be a kind thing to say to that person, even though I'm feeling that way. How can I say what I'm trying to say in a way that's going to be more kind and respectful? That involves a whole host of what we call self-regulation skills, language and communication skills, emotion regulation skills. So it's not just a choice, even respect, just like compliance is determined by skill, not will. I can see it very clearly. It's a skill that needs sometimes a 14-year-old needs to just learn the skill how to when it comes to being respectful because they, they don't, yes, they think that they have their own mind, but at the end of the day, they're only 14 years old and they need well, guidance. Well, they have a developmental push at that age to uh, seek out independence. And right. sometimes it's really hard to have this sort of strong drive for autonomy and independence and to be able to pursue those things in a way that doesn't come across as disrespectful. And that's why adolescents tend to be a bit more disrespectful than even uh, much younger children. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you so much. SK, I think it's all the way from Israel. SK, are you? Hi, hi from Israel. <laughs> hello. Hello, Go hello. Ahead. Thank you so much. This is so great always. I feel so like spoiled when we have these like thingies. <laughs> anyway, so I have something for Rabbi YY and I have something for Dr. Stewart. So, um... I just want to quickly say my situation. Um, I was at Fresh Start, obviously, for a reason. So I had a very hard childhood. Um, a lot of attachment trauma. Um, and then God blessed me with two special needs kids. I have four. Sorry. I'm, I have you don't have to kids. apologize. You don't have to apologize. It's fine. I know. I just, okay. I, just, I know this has to. You could Has cry. So, so basically, um, what I want from Rabbi Yahweh is chedok, and I just want to like, like say a little bit of what's going on, and I want to hear what what Doctor Stewart has like to say on such a situation. So, I I I listened to to your TED thingy. I probably cried through it because these things always are very like. And I don't go for every speaker, but it was amazing. It was just, it was one of these like amazing. So first of all, anyways, it was really amazing, very touching and very like truthful, very like, also like, I think these, these um, 
when I have these aha moments, it kind of like, it like gives me like answers to like what I didn't have. And I was, um, I don't know if I was dyslexic, but I was, I was a school dropout. Not cause I, not cause I wanted to, but because I couldn't, like you said, and, um, no one ever made sense about it for me. Like I, I made sense like much later on, like I, I slowly, I'm 32 now, but I slowly can make peace with it. It wasn't my fault. So, um, I understand everything like your TED talk. I understood it. I'm, I'm the, I'm the person like I understand intellectually. It, I love these things and like, I love truth and it, it comes, it, it just goes in and I'm like, wow, my thing is I get so stimulated from truth. Like I get very excited and <laughs> Yochanan for sure remembers me from fresh said I was very like, I learned it, it all went in very fast and very deep. And I, I, processed very deeply like the healing and the information um but I got stuck with I had such a hard time regulating from that excitement from I was like on a high like I was on drugs (laughs) from the like just from the healing it was amazing but um I like since fresh I got better since fresh start but I feel like this is just still there like the the stimulation of like just the information just like the grasping things and um so really my question is like this. Um, it's not really a question. It's just like, I want to hear what you, what you have to say for me. Like basically like for me, it's just it, things are in a slow pace because I have one, one, my oldest is with autism. It's high functioning, but he has autism. And my six year old is with ADHD and the pandas. I don't know if you know how much you know about pandas. Um, he's really like, uh, really, really wild and, and, and picks up knives, like he, he, the worst. And as you can imagine, like as I, I'm a highly sensitive person, number one, and um, still doing trauma healing. So um, you could imagine how it must look sometimes. I just have to retreat. Many times I just have to retreat. And then my husband has to take over and he's not as inspired as me. And for me, sometimes listening, even through the closed door, hearing the sounds, I don't think it's so terrible, but my, my PTSD just goes into like fire. Like I just like hear a little bit raised voices. It, it puts me into fight or flight. And I, I just like, you could imagine. So like just the situation, like I, I'm the person, I want to be perfect. I, I understand it so well and I want to do it so well, but just my trauma is like, it's just like making it so hard and I just want to know, you probably said a lot of stuff like now while you were talking, but I, I like listening to me and seeing, and probably other people here might have similar experience because the trauma just like, it just. I, like, I think, Shady, let, let me just yeah. chime in. I, I think what you're sure. trying to say is when our own trauma and our own journey and our own healing and our own recovery, and it's no matter whether or not somebody comes to fresh start or acknowledges trauma at the end of the day our own history doctor is such a huge part of this you know what what type of what what perhaps encouraging words might you have to to somebody working on on themselves thank you yeah go ahead doc well look i I think thank you for sharing all that and i it sounds to me like part of the reason um things like this are hitting you so powerfully is because of the real 
personal resonance for you. It's not, you know, you're seeing this as you look at your own children and with some of the challenges they have, but through the lens of your own personal experience of, you know, being really misunderstood and likely, I, you know, don't know, but likely rather mistreated as a result. And, and that kind of epiphany is very powerful, but it's also overwhelming because, you have a you know a rush of of thoughts and feelings about what happened, what could have been differently, et cetera. So it's rather overwhelming. Um, and I you know I I think making sure that you have enough time and space, ideally you know uh, with professional assistance to to walk through your own personal experience. Um, and I I guess you know uh, encouraging words. I, I have a, a good friend and colleague of mine that I work closely with, who's sort of one of the most renowned experts on trauma internationally. Uh, his name's Dr. Bruce Perry. And he wrote a book recently that um, is very accessible. He wrote it with um, Oprah Winfrey um, called What Happened to You? And I think you uh, should pick up a copy of that book, What Happened to You? I think it would mean a lot uh, and, rather, and be rather helpful. Um, but one of the things I want to draw your attention to that he'll talk about in there is what he's referred to as a, a, a bit of um, post-traumatic wisdom uh, as opposed uh, to post-traumatic stress, wow. that coming out of trauma, there are epiphanies, um, a, a level of understanding, a wisdom that one can't achieve without having, having experienced those things. And I, from listening to you briefly, I think that you'll be able to bring a fair amount of that post-traumatic wisdom to the parenting of what sounds like very challenging children as well. So, um, so you know, that's something that your experience can bring that, that's going to be overwhelmingly positive in the lives of, of your children. So um, check Doctor, that out. I, I see I see Rabbi Waiwai's face just just lit up there, Rabbi Waiwai. I'm sure there's something you're going to add to that. No, I'm in middle. To... I'm in middle of reading the book. I'm in middle of oh, reading, you're the book. reading the book. It's near my bed. Yeah. What happened to you? What happened to you? And well, the way the way Doctor Perry puts it is, don't at, instead of asking the child or yourself the question, "What's wrong with you?" You should ask, "What happened to you?" I thought that was beautiful. Don't say what's wrong with you. It's really what we're hearing today from Dr. Stewart. Instead of saying what's wrong with you, 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 you're so sick, you're crazy, you're bad, you're horrible. Wonder what happened to you. I just thought that was a very powerful The other piece that I would call your attention to in that book is he'll talk a lot about how you need to regulate somebody before they'll be in a position to relate to you, before you can reason together because that's how our brains work, regulate, relate, reason, sort of moving up the brain. And the reason he and I do a lot of teaching together is that process that I was sharing with the group earlier, empathize, share your concern, invite the child to collaborate. That's a way to operationalize, to put into practical practice, regulate, relate, reason. You regulate through empathy. You invite the child to relate with you, to relate to you by sharing your concern. And then ultimately, by inviting them to collaborate, you're asking them to reason with you. And if at any point in that process, while you're trying to move up their brain, if they sort of get dysregulated and go back to their brainstem, you just go right back to that first ingredient I told you about and re-empathize. Remind them that you haven't lost sight of their concern, their perspective, what you learned from them before sort of moving back up the brain again. I, if I may, may just add something, I thought there was an incredible story Dr. Perry shares in the book 
And that is, just very briefly, it was, it was so telling. There was a child who was abused by his father. His father is in prison. And the child was doing well, but one school particularly, with one teacher, the child lost it. And the child became a menace. And everyone was blaming the child for the terrible behavior. And this, Dr. Bruce, went to see the father in prison. And he smelled his deodorant. And he asked the teacher what deodorant he uses. And it turned out to be the same. So I understand that when this child went into the classroom of this teacher, the smell of his teacher's deodorant triggered his nervous system and told him there's a lion in the room because he was already preparing for his father's horrible abuse. Do you understand? And, and, you know, um, interestingly, um, olfactory um, uh, memories uh, stimulated by smell are some of the most powerful ones that, that, that we have. Um, so, I, so, so this child know? basically was, was prepared for this child. The teacher wasn't a teacher. The teacher was, was yes. a monster. And there's all kinds of ways that, that uh, trauma can, you know, uh, trigger a response from us where, you know, we're not acting out of reason anymore. So, do you want me, I'm, I'm curious, in the chat here, I've been reading a bunch of things. Do you want me, Jonathan, to try to respond to some of the things in the chat? Well, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm going to, I, I want to ask one side question that came in. Mm-hmm. It's a little outside, but I'm. It, it's, it comes in a lot, and I'm curious if you have any data or what to say on it. The question is, as far as children are concerned, is it better to stay married in an abusive marriage, or is it better to get divorced? And I know this is a loaded question. Uh, it's loaded. Rabbi, in the sense Rabbi, it's very hard to answer questions like that in generalities because knowing the particular circumstances of a, a situation are, are crucial to being able to good, give good advice, particularly clinical advice. Um, as it relates to a generality, um, I would say that um, the damage done by staying in an abusive relationship to you and the children will generally far outweigh the challenges of uh, family splitting up. So, um, you know, if I had to answer that question in generality, I, I would say um, the damage done by staying would be worse. Okay. Yeah, I think it was just generality. I do what we do have one more live one. And then we're going to move to wrap up, actually. MP, are you there? MP? Yes. Go ahead. Um, I think that Rabbi YY and Dr. Ablon touched on this, but I've noticed in my own teenager and a relative's teenager, what seems like a foundational issue that they want the world to conform to them instead of them working with the standards and the way the world works. And parents, teachers, professionals, quote unquote, tend to, from what I've learned and seen, they tend to sort of go, their go-to is we have to teach this kid to conform to the world. Otherwise, they're not going to be successful in life. And this really hits me like pretty deeply. And yet it's so outside of the box to not have this thought process. My real question is, how do we work with this? Right. Well, it's, you know, it's when you put it that way, it's sort of ironic, right? Because the thought is that kids need to learn how to deal with the world as it is. In other words, they need to develop cognitive flexibility. 
And the way we are going to help them develop flexibility is by towing the line and being inflexible. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, you know, but here's the thing. Um, One of the most important lessons I learned early on in my career is that um, you can't use what I call plan A to get people to do plan B. In other words, if somebody doesn't believe kids do well if they can, doesn't believe this is about skill, not will, the last thing you want to try to do is impose that mindset upon them. You cannot impose collaborative problem solving on other people. Uh, now, so what do you do in that situation? You practice the same process that I prescribed before, but it's between adults. I think some of the most important collaborative problem solving that goes on in support of kids is with no kid around. It's with the adults, whether it's two parents, whether it's a parent and a teacher, whether it's a principal and a teacher, you name it. But it's us trying to use that process with one another. So if somebody is sort of coming at it from a very different perspective than you think is helpful for the child, you know what you do? Listen hard to them first. You don't have to agree with them, but listen really hard. And I guarantee you they're going to be more likely to listen to you after. And then you invite them to the table and ask them how you're going to reconcile these two perspectives and how you can work together. And by the way, if they know anything about our work, they'll they'll probably say, oh, I see you're trying to use that plan B thing on me. Uh, and I always tell people, well, you've got a good response to that because you can say to them is mm, actually you can't use plan B on someone. You can use plan A on someone, but B has to be done with someone. And yes, I'm trying to understand where you're coming from, hoping you'll do the same with me so we can put our heads together. So, um, you know, that that's how I recommend handling it. And keep in mind, all the adults around us, uh, even ones who are taking a perspective, a point of view, acting in ways we're not excited about, those adults do well if they can too. They're doing the best they can to handle the situation with the skills they have. You may be running into adult inflexibility, same process. And last thing I'll say for now is one of my favorite findings from our research group is that when adults collaborate with children using the process I described, it's not just the kids who develop neurocognitive skills. The adults do too. We adults, you can change, you know, you can uh, teach an old dog new tricks. We get better at things like perspective taking, empathizing, flexible thinking, problem solving, if we practice as well. So quick follow up to that is just, I'm really struggling with this aspect. What do you suggest as tools? And I'm working really hard on doing this. Um, My own issues, overwhelm and stuff get in the way. And just plain lack of skill like you're talking about so yeah. no so, so doctor doctor maybe doctor maybe we could also use this opportunity to br- sh- br- uh, share briefly some resources specifically what does think kids do what sure. does your program do who can help thank sure. you yeah, i'll be happy to thank you um so think kids is the program that i run uh, which is in the department of psychiatry here in boston at massachusetts general hospital And what we do is we try to teach this approach um, to people all over the world. And we teach, it started as a parenting approach in the late 90s. um, And we then began using the approach in all kinds of places that I alluded to earlier, you know, tough places like prisons and treatment facilities, but also now schools all over the world use the approach as well. Um, So we, you know, our job at Think Kids is to teach people this approach. Uh, So if you go to thinkkids.org, uh, here, I'll put it in the, the chat for people. Um, thinkkids.org is where you can find us on the web. 
And there's all kinds of resources there. Uh, let me mention a few. Um, first of all, you, you can, uh, there's a bunch of videos and things that you can watch right there that will, uh, you know, teach you some of the basics. Uh, but for instance, we run parent classes. If you click on the parent page and scroll down, uh, you can register. These are um, Zoom-based parent classes where groups of parents get together over the course of eight weeks to learn and practice the approach. Those uh, are a very effective way uh, of uh, learning the approach. But we also have intensive trainings that um, that we do. We have two levels of them. We call them a tier one and a tier two training that are open to the public. Parents, educators, clinicians, all kinds of people um, can uh, take those trainings uh, as well. And then, you know, there's a bunch of additional resources depending on sort of where you're looking to apply this. So if you're interested in schools, I, I wrote a book called The School Discipline Fix. Uh, that's a curriculum for schools. Uh, if you're interested more in your own, you know, how you apply this to yourself in your own life with your relation, adult relationships, your colleagues, uh, the book Changeable that, uh, that was mentioned earlier is a good resource. And, and both those books are, um, on audiobook as well. So if you prefer to, to, um, listen along as well. Um, and you'll, on the website at Think Kids, you'll find all kinds of, um, other resources as well, including, um, resources, you know, in different parts of the, um, the world as well that people can access, including, you know, uh, experts who are certified in the, in the approach. So Rabbi, uh, thank you, Dr. Rabbi YY and Dr. Avlam. Before we wind down, Rabbi YY, perhaps we can start with you some, some, I mean, this has been, Incredible. It always is. But um, this is very special. Um, Rabbi YY, perhaps some sort of wrap up thoughts and then we'll ask, ask Dr. Avalon to share some final thoughts, along with a commitment from you, Dr. Avalon, that we'll do this again. But this time I'm not going to wait two and a half years. We'll do it sooner. But That's not plan A, is it, John? No, no. Uh, you know, and I don't know what it is. That's true. You're right. Okay, no, we'll, we'll take this conversation offline. That's just a request. No, I'd be happy to join you all again. I've enjoyed this, and I uh, hope it. Uh, I hope it has been helpful and will prove helpful to folks. It has. Uh, yeah, so, why why go ahead? Yeah. First of all, I just want to thank uh, Dr. Ablon uh, profoundly, and express prof- my profound gratitude, our profound gratitude for your. You know, sharing this time with us, and most importantly, your wisdom and your uh, your empathetic wisdom, and uh, your perspectives learned, you know, through blood, sweat, and tears over so many decades. So, so thank you for that. And I just want to share with everybody, you know, just one perspective that we've we've learned in 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 the Jewish sacred texts that I think really comes to the fore, and and we can really experience and and relate to it, resonates when we hear a discussion like this from Dr. Ablon, and that is. You know, one of the great ideas in Judaism is that children are not just here to be educated, but children are here to educate us. And uh, the last prophecy of the Hebrew Bible, the prophet Malachi, he finishes off his prophecy. This was like the last prophetic message to the Jewish people is that there will come a day when the parents will be restored emotionally through the children. And I think what we learn from this so deeply is that our great role in educating our children is not just educating our children. It's really first and foremost educating ourselves. It's really working on ourselves. It's really expanding our own horizons, confronting our own traumas, our own insecurities, our own skeletons and fears and demons, and really going into the depth of our souls and 
and that empowers us to be able to be the parents that we're capable of being. So I think, you know, we ought to be grateful to our children because they put us through the ringer a lot. But I think they do it for us, ultimately, consciously or subconsciously. They help us become uh, incredible human beings. And, uh, and I think all of us, through our children and through our struggles with our children, have become much, much better people if we're only open to learn and, uh, and to discover. And, uh, you know, I think we should be thankful for that and just keep our eye on the target of, of having the humility and the courage to be able to go much deeper into ourselves. And I think the second thing we learn from this is that history is progressing and we're really reaching a space where we're discovering that what we always called evil and dark and toxic and negative is really much more sophisticated than that. It's not that we're evil or our children are evil. It's really a lack of understanding who we are. When, when, when I am blocked to my potential, when I am blocked to my light and my resources, I may become that, that horrible person. But really at the core, there is, there is so much goodness and, 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 and holiness and beauty. And, and that's, and when we give a person the ability to shine by taking away the blockages, they shine. So really a much more genuine definition of evil is blockage, blockages to your true inner self. So thank you for that. Well, th- thank you for th- those are great summaries and you're hitting upon, you know, again, the most important piece, I think, which is just how we think about people and their behavior and keeping in mind that people do well if they can. And it's about skill, not will. And I would second your first point as well, which is, um, you know, you know I- I'm very thankful to the extraordinarily challenging children that I've been able to work with, because I think what they've taught me is a better way to parent, teach, raise all children. Because the reality is, you know, there are kids with good skills who are very compliant. They don't cause difficulty, but they let us get away with a form of parenting and teaching that I don't think moves us along. Uh, Because ultimately, I think with those kids, we get away with using our power and we teach the next generation of adults that when there's a problem, the more bigger, stronger person's going to win. Might makes right. And um, these kids who really challenge us, they've taught me that there's a better way and that we can teach the next generation of adults that when there's a problem, the best solution is collaboration. Work hard to understand each other. And uh, imagine a day when there's a whole generation of adults when faced with problems, their first instinct is not to reach for power, but to say, help me understand. Uh, And that's quite a gift to be given by these kids. So um, thank you for that reflection. Thank you all for having me. I do hope it's been helpful. And um, I look forward to connecting with you all in the future. The last question is, last question is how we get Vladimir Putin to have an appointment with you. (laughs) Well, in in the end of my last book, I talked about, I think there's lessons to be learned in all kinds of places on the world stage uh, when it comes to to some of the things we've discussed today. So uh, one can hope. Well, he did, uh, Rabbi Wai Vladimir would have to come to Fresh Start first to really work on some deep wounds. Then we can put him with Dr. Ablam. Thank you again, Rabbi Wai Thank you, all of our alumni. Thank you, Dr. Ablam. This has been incredible. We will take it. Uh, I'm sure we'll continue this and do another round. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you again thank for joining. You, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. The Yeshiva.net. 